Hello there. Welcome to the Oblivious Maximus podcast for another week. I am Aaron Osborne. I am the person talking. I am the one who hosts this show. Um, this week, my guest is Trad Nathan, a very good friend of mine. Trad owns Crowbar in Brisbane, one of the best venues in the country. Uh, he and his fiance Tyler have busted their asses to turn it into an amazing uh, bar and venue, and all the staff that work there are legends. And Trad was kind enough to let me talk to Luke from Violent Soho there when I was in Brisbane a couple weeks ago. And while I was up, I also talked to him there. Um, now, something before I get too far into this podcast. There is a video version of this podcast. This is the first time we have tried to do this, and it is on YouTube. So go on YouTube and search Oblivious Maximus, Trad Nathan, you'll find it. There'll be a link in the description of this podcast, and there'll also be a link on our Facebook and our Twitter and our Instagrams for you to find it. Um, But we're trying something new. Uh, My friend Patrick Galvin, who I'm sure you all know by now, I've harped on about him a lot, and my friend John Hatfield were in Brisbane with me and helped me film it and put it all together, and I could not thank them enough. I also cannot thank Tyler and Trad enough for letting me do it in there and sort of uh, commandeering the bar for an hour while we filmed this conversation. Um, But there's a, uh, you know, great excerpts of the conversation I put on uh, to YouTube for the film version and we filmed it there because we love how the bar looks and we love the vibe so if you want to check that out go there uh the podcast version the one you're listening to right now is the unabridged version of that conversation this is the full uh chat and um yeah it's uh really awesome i'm very stoked that i got to talk to trad um we've been friends for a long time i exist has been playing shows at crowbar every chance we get to go to brisbane Um, it's, you know, one of my favorite venues in Australia. I think it's one of the best bars in the country as well now. Um, and yeah, it was great to talk to Trad about, um, the experiences he's had in music. Trad also used to play in the Amity Affliction and the Scare. So it was cool to talk to him about that and how, you know, music informed his life growing up and how that sort of, uh, translated now to the career he's found himself in owning and operating a venue in Brisbane. Um, and, you know, the life he's developing up there with his fiance and with his daughter, Winter, as well. Um, so, yeah, check out the video if you get a chance. Otherwise, enjoy this uh, audio version of the podcast. Uh, before we get started, I will also spruik my live podcast down here in Melbourne again um, with Callum Preston, Kane Hibbard, Matt Weston, and Patrick Galvin. It's on Thursday, December 17th at the Reverence Hotel in Footscray. Jamie Hay and Liam White will be playing some music after we finish doing the chat. There are pre-sale tickets for $5 a pop on our web store. There's a link for that in the description of this too. If you want to buy one of those, that'd be awesome. Um, Cool. Enough talking. This is Oblivious Maximus, episode 28. We're getting deep now. With Trad Nathan of Crowbar Brisbane fame. Enjoy it. I know I did. Brutal! Hi! Welcome to the podcast, Hey, How you going? Good. I should drink that. Okay. Can't 
is in that thing. No. Um, okay, so all of them start with asking how people primarily got into music. What was the first thing that drove your interest or inspired you to listen to music? Uh, I think it was a lot to do with the the scene that I grew up in. You know, mm-hmm. I grew up surfing and skating, so for me it was predominantly seeing surf movies and skate yeah, movies yeah. and uh, <coughs> correlating what I thought was cool in the yeah. 80s to, uh, <laughs> to, to, to all things. these bands. And I never knew the bands. Like, I'd seriously put the, the VCR in, I'd, I'd hook it up to the tape deck so I could record the songs off the videos. Yeah, right. And, you know, we, we just didn't have access in, you know, especially the mid-80s to internet and whatnot. Yeah, so, yeah. So uh, your exposure just came primarily through videotapes and things. Yeah, just surfing videos. So I think we were really lucky. There was a lot of producers, especially in surfing, who sort of were really into the, you know, the 90s, early 90s punk rock and Mm -hmm. hardcore. So what sort of things were in that then? Uh, Like things you were listening to? Oh, man. You know what? I think it was weird because there was so much of stuff like adolescence and... uh, you know, that really great early 90s punk rock mm-hmm. sort of skate surf yeah, sound. Yeah. But then there was, like, stuff like 88 Fingers Louie. Sure. You know, even even to Blink to an extent, you know, yeah. I think, you know, the first couple of times I heard them on those videos, you know, I was I was at that age, yeah, you know, yeah, it so funny. it was a, a good time. <coughs> and so where were you living when that was happening? Uh, I was in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I grew up in Australia. Uh, moved to Hong Kong when I was about 13. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then came back yeah. eventually. So. And what? How long were you in Hong Kong for? Uh, in between, sort of back and forward between the ages of you know fourteen to, to seventeen. Yeah, and that's obviously like a in- really important time for you, like developing as a human, but as well like your interests and shit are all tied up in that age group. Really, it was it was such a you know, and I remember my dad saying you know I, I had my family was really into sports and I kind of took the surfing skating path where they were taking the rugby and rowing path and that type of shit so black sheeping the whole family dad would say like if you play rugby you can have friends anywhere in the world and you can travel and I was like shit man I I don't (laughs) like a thousand dudes jumping on top of me and sniffing me and whatnot so no sniffing yep um and so when we moved to Hong Kong and you know I, I had these uh, you know, I, I just belonged to this scene that I didn't even know existed, mm-hmm. and, and because I was like a, like an individual soul over there, kind of wandering yeah. around looking for friends, uh, it was really great. And I fell into a bunch of friends who, you know, played in bands and were promoters and stuff. So yeah, right. from an early age, you know, I had friends bringing over bands to to Hong Kong, like Fugazi yeah, right. and Crazy. Uh, Envy and Pride Bowl, and yeah. you know, just this fucked up mix of. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, the, the, everyone sort of came from the same place, you know. We were all the dudes who'd fucking bleached their hair at school because we didn't want to fit in with yeah, the, yeah. the rest of the dicks there, you know. Yeah. So. And were you at an international school when you were in Hong Kong? Yeah, it was. Well, I hardly ever went to school, but okay. when I was, <laughs> when I was, <laughs> I was there. Yeah. Well, it's, it's funny because I don't think... I think you're the only person that I can really have that relatability to in that sense being that I grew up in Taiwan and like went to American schools the whole time I was there and it's a crazy it's a crazy like place to grow up and it's a crazy environment to be in because it is you are in a different country but you're also experiencing something that's like totally foreign to that country as well like totally it's a totally like 
Uh, I'm sure you got patted on the head many times yes, for having blonde hair. Definitely <laughs> did. And my little sister was like in public, you know, long flowing blonde hair. People oh, man. ushering her through crowds. You know? Number one sale. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's it definitely, I mean, I was kind of, I left that environment when I was like 11, but I noticed for sure that growing up in there, you'd think growing up in China and things like that, you would be exposed to far more culture, but you're actually, at least my experience was, I was exposed to far more American culture and American music and things like that just because of the people that I was surrounded by, basically. Absolutely, and I think, you know, you've got to remember, Asia is kind of like the epicenter of the world, so if it's happening in Europe or it's happening in the States, mm-hmm. it somehow passes through Asia. Yeah. You can't not, you know, yeah, so whether sure. it be bands having stopovers, you know, coming in, looking up a bar, us getting a demo tape from a band, you know, and I remember the the first time that, you know, we heard Mindsnare, mm-hmm. you know, and it was, it was like such this great revelation amongst our yeah, friends, yeah. and we're like, fuck there's this band in Australia and they're so heavy and mm. you know it was crazy um, so yeah I, I think a lot of it and you know we all sort of grew up in the days of the 14.4 internet yeah. uh, dial up <laughs> perfect yeah <laughs> so it, it was so hard to find music so we relied on zines like Maximum Rock and Roll mm. and you know Punk Planet and stuff and yeah. you know do your mail order and yeah, get it sure. sent over and yeah it's and it, like yeah I've said it a lot in these podcasts but like really it's a totally different thing now in terms of who gets music and how you receive it now because like I feel like people in my age bracket or like just a little bit younger than me are the total end of dial-up internet having to buy $45 CDs like that as soon as that changed it was like like you had to bust your ass to get music. Oh like fucking! You had to it work a, for it. It was like, a it was a week long download yeah, yeah. for one song. You know. <laughs> yeah, and also the other thing, like if you didn't, like you'd have to go into things blind too. Mm. Like my example that I always give is that I used to be on the Roadrunner mailing list, and the Roadrunner like catalog would come around, and then you'd pick a bunch of CDs that you wanted, but you'd have to give like five different options in case they were sold out. Yeah. So if you or really wanted the Slipknot CD, but you just have to go with like, oh, what's my next one? Oh, the typo thing's the next one. Like, did you, and then whatever arrived, even if you hadn't heard any of it, you're like, oh, okay, cool. Like, that's yeah. what I like now. I think like, that <laughs> happened to me with uh, Earth Crisis when they, um, <coughs> oh, what was that record they bought out? Slither, I yeah. think it was. <laughs> and I was just like, like, Earth Crisis, no, yes. <coughs> you were betrayed by uh, the mail order. I w- well, because it was, you know, I hadn't, read into it too much because <laughs> yeah. there was just limited internet and whatnot, and I was like well Earth Crisis from Breed the Killers to Slither was such a I didn't <laughs> know where yeah. I was like new metal on yeah. or something it was but um you know I think that was kind of part of the progression of, of that music as well yeah so you moved back to Australia when you were what 17 18 yeah 17-ish yeah it was it was around 17 and um I, I just started going through <coughs> excuse me the uh, the whole 90s emo phase sure. so your sunny day real estates and whatnot. and uh, we were living in this town called Caboolture which is like 45 minutes north of Brisbane mm. yep. and uh, there was this punk rock show coming through at a tavern called The Bungalow which was quite close to where we lived <coughs> excuse me and uh, I made a, a promise ring shirt I don't know if you know that band yes, on Jade Tree <laughs> uh, but it was an iron on stencil and I'd put it on, but, you know, 
it's the fucking late 90s. I didn't yeah. know what the fuck was going on. <laughs> Ironed it on. It's come up backwards. I'm like, I don't give a fuck. No one's going to know who this band is anyway. Yeah. I'm cool. Yeah. And, I'm wearing uh, this backwards shirt. <laughs> went to this show and um, there was this band playing called Hindsight. And uh, the the drummer, Damien, came up to me. He's like, fuck, Promise Ring. I've, I've heard of them. You know, I, I run this record label and I play in this band. And I'm like, well, your band's awesome. Yeah. Tell me more about your label. And. You know, he was doing stuff with, with bands like Coalesce and stuff and mm-hmm. shit that I'd just started looking up to. Sure. Uh, and I think the next day I was on tour with them, driving them, and uh, nearly killed them on the first day. So <laughs> I'd A never, good experience. I'd never driven an automatic <laughs> van before, and uh, we pulled over to get petrol. And I was like, I couldn't work out the correlation between the brake and the accelerator. Right. And I uh, went to brake and accelerated, like, coming onto the highway. And I swear to God, like, a truck missed us by a fucking Jesus. mill. <laughs> Good work. Um, and that was a, that was a, a Voodoo Glow Skulls tour. So it was, yeah, it was just awesome. I pretty much got straight in the mix, straight into the uh, Australian punk rock scene. Yeah, right. Crazy. Um, and so... Like, from there, what what was, like, the movement then for you? Like, did you stay living up there, or did you then move into Brisbane, or...? Uh, well, I started doing a, a distro for Damien, because uh, he had his label building records, like I was saying. So, every show in Brisbane, I'd turn up with my little distro and, you know, just got really involved in the scene that way, yeah. just by setting up the distro and talking to people and... Mm-hmm. Uh, it was awesome, you know, because I could sit there with the, the Discord discord catalog with bands like cure not you and at the same time have botch on the other hand and you know it, it was great that i got to understand all the different facets of punk rock and hardcore from sure. such a young age i feel like kids today are very much like oh i i can mosh to this part of a song and this is the only genre that i like mm. and they don't understand where it actually started from and yeah it's it's uh it's quite frustrating but yeah. i think that's just getting old no i think so, so too but it's it's one of those things like <clears throat> I mean, it's sort of things that I've started noticing in the last couple of years is that, like, and I guess it comes from playing in a band too, is that things like when people, you see people sort of imitating and mimicking bands that are, like, modern bands or liking parts of songs or whatever that are modern, but they don't try and go for, the like, the root of it. Like, they don't try and understand the start. And it's like, you know, when people are like, oh, you know, we're a doom band or whatever. We love... I God, and it's like that's right, like that's awesome, but you need to listen to Sabbath because that's where you get the good stuff from, you right? Know? <laughs> like that's how you get it. Um, but I think that's one of those things too, where like again, it's a spoil for choice thing now, where because you have access to everything, you can be picky and choosy about what you go for. Whereas at a point when it was you'd like bust your ass for anything you were grabbing onto whatever you could hold on to yeah it became you your know? identity yeah yeah you know and that's that's what I think kids are, are, or you know I think the you know the punk rock and hardcore scenes respectively are lacking where in the metal scene you'll find that there's a lot more homage to the yeah. the forefathers and, sure. and I think that's fucking awesome you know yeah. because you know bands like you know damaged because they'll <laughs> come out and tour and mm-hmm. still pull shitloads of kids and that's yeah. you know that's fucking awesome mm. Um, okay, so from there working on that sort of stuff, like, what was movement for you to start playing music then? Like, had that always been there as well, or was that yeah. sort of came later? Yes and no. Like, I'd always loved being a part of the organize, organizing of, of things, you know. Sure. So, 
I guess from, from doing that distro, I met some great bands like Blue Line Medic and uh, even 28 Days to an extent back then, uh, where we, you know, they needed a booking agent. I loved putting on shows, you know, yeah. and it, it just became a part of the norm. So you're running the distro, putting on the shows. Uh, and, you know, from 17, putting on shows and giving bands guarantees, you know, I learned a lot of lessons very, yes. very, very early on. Um, so, yeah, kind of moving on from there, I guess, I moved down to Sydney for a minute and, uh, you know, that's how I got to know Graham from Resist and uh, formed that relationship. So yeah. when it came time for me to book an actual club for the first time, I'd actually made all these awesome contacts and you know, partied with all these awesome yeah, yeah. people around Australia from touring with uh, my friends' bands that, you know, I could pick up the phone and be like, hey, irrelevant, you should come play my venue. And sure, it just, it built and developed from there. And, you know, we were getting, you know, four to 600 kids on a Wednesday night, yeah, you right. know, in, in 2001, 2002 yeah. type That's of crazy. thing. So it, it really just built and developed from there to the point where I was like, you know, I'd, I'd always, I think I'd listened to a lot of bands, uh that had heavy keyboard influence like Murder City Devils and mm -hmm. stuff. So I really fell in love with that sort of element of punk rock to make it a little bit different. Sure. And uh, I joined a band called The Scare. Yep. Uh, and we toured pretty hectically, but the band got so big so quickly in the industry's eyes, but we weren't actually carrying the band as far as people-wise sure. went. So yep. there was this tremendous hype and we were playing all these Vice fucking parties. And yeah, right. As much as it was fun, it kind of destroyed my uh, belief in music a little bit yeah. for a minute. I think it can, and I think that's something that's sort of like definitely hasn't gone away at all. And I think there's uh, oftentimes you hear, you'll see, you know, like floods of fucking posters and advertisement online and all that stuff about festivals and bands and things. And then you go, and it's 400 people on the door, all just filled with industry folk or whatever that right there's no cool but they're not there for the band they're there to fucking wank one another off about it was a giant circle yeah job. and like I, I don't know like there's I guess there's a space for that in the sense that people are doing it but it's definitely not something when you're like playing music that's awesome to be a part of well not coming from the culture that I think we'd sort of grown up in and, and for me as much as the hype was exciting, you know, that was, that was every kid's dream, you know, yeah, to, to do sure. these big tours. And, you know, we were touring with bands like Blood Brothers and mm -hmm. the Savvy Fav and stuff. So they were, they were bands that I looked up to. It was yeah, fucking yeah. awesome. But at the same time, there was this tremendous industry circle jerk and, you know, hundreds of thousands of pounds being thrown around. You know, we, we did, you know, massive deals with EMI in Europe mm -hmm. and... You know, we signed to a label in Australia, which was Below Par Records, and they sold to Eleven, uh, which was a you know a part of EMI. And, yeah, oh, money and people and contracts <laughs> and yeah. you know you're you're at an age too where I just wanted to fucking party with friends. You know, that yeah, was yeah, part of the experience. Yeah, and, and it sort of gets tangled. I'll up. sign this. I'll <laughs> sign that. Yep, no dramas, and you get out of it, and you're like, fuck. Well, we did all that, and there's you know we destroyed ourselves. And, yeah. You guys took all the money. <laughs> so how long, how long did that go on for then? What was like the end point for that with you? Uh, I think I kind of started to drift away from the band. The band sort of were, were taking a bit more of a, an industry level that I wasn't psyched on. And, uh, you know, 
I guess we just grew apart. Sure. And uh, I ended up getting kicked out of the band a month before I meant to move to, to London. Right. And uh, it, was, it was pretty distressing at the time, but I think, you know, in hindsight, it was a, a very good thing for mm-hmm. me to, to grow and move on. Mm-hmm. So I stayed here. Uh, and and you got to remember during all this time, I'm still running clubs and putting yeah. in shows, and so there's a lot of other irons in the fire at the same yeah. time as well. So for me, it was still like, well, fuck, you know, back to the drawing board. Yeah. I still love what I do, and you know, I am hurt by this situation, but fuck it, you know, that's, you know, and the band came back a couple of years with their tails between their legs anyway. Um, by that time, uh, Joel from uh, the Amity <coughs> Affliction had asked me to help him out with a magazine he was doing called Death Before Dishonor. Yeah. And um, I was just like, fuck, man, I need to play music again. He's like, yeah. well, I liked what you were doing in The Scare, so let's do something together. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess that kind of blew up to the point where we created hype around it. And then I think the other dudes in Amity were like, oh, well, fuck, why don't we just all get back together? Right. Um, and I'd never written stuff in that sort of element of hardcore before you know it was a bit of an un- unknown territory for me i'd seen the bands play yeah at, at mary street and the zoo and, and the venues that i booked but i couldn't understand how you could make the keyboards work <laughs> yeah, yeah you know it was almost yeah once again that new metal type of vibe thing yeah um but it was great and we formed a great friendship and and we worked really hard on the band for a lot of years and did mm. a lot of tours you know, sleeping on floors and yeah. every little shitty city we could find. and As you have to do. As you have to do. And, yeah. and as you can imagine, the, the backlash <coughs> of putting heavy keys on top of a band that had already just been playing this kind of straight up, I guess, post-hardcore, uh, emo core, whatever you call it at mm-hmm. the time. <laughs> the opinions, you know. Yeah, yeah. And you're reading the internet and you're like, fuck. And then, you know, you get a message from a friend, you're like, fuck yeah. So this giant wave of going up and down and, and writing records and I was really really lucky to have a lot of talented people around me at the time to yeah. to get us through the process yeah and so was that like was the process of doing all that I mean I'm sure throughout that you had you know as you said before you had other things going on as well mm-hmm. where was your mindset going in terms of like how you were sort of building yourself through that period like was that a thought at all to you or was it just literally like fucking playing keyboards and fucking getting drunk like uh, what was what was the vibe I think you know I've always had I love to see things work and I love to get you know the the thing about being creative in, in this industry is getting it out to people and you know lots there's so many great people just sitting there on their hands who are doing fucking excellent shit but mm-hmm. it's the accessibility and you know yeah. I guess we'll, we'll talk about the labels side of things yeah, yeah. later but um, you know, I love to make those things accessible to people and, and I saw that as my role in the band. So I really wanted to push the band as hard as I could that way, you know, utilizing a lot of those industry contacts I'd made in the scare. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, one of them, uh, Luke Logerman, he used to be, you know, the drug dealer to the scare, ends up, you know, <laughs> managing fucking Unified as a label and sitting in on these Amity practices and, you know, through a relationship that, that I'd built with him. So... It was great, you know, we had this great circle of friends going on and, yeah. you know, we were getting shows booked in, you know, six hours west of uh, Adelaide, you know, yeah, and playing right. in just all these whack places and, you know, looking at the the role models before us who were paving that way, like your Parkways and Prom Queens at the time who were doing, yeah. you know, all lots these great regional shows yeah, yeah. and 
yeah really changing it up how you would tour i guess like i mean i think that's uh, i guess coming from canberra and stuff too that seeing that stuff when i was younger not being there really at all and then when those guys sort of started doing that stuff it really i think that was kind of half the reason why that push for international bands and things to start flowing through canberra and even occurred was because of tours like that coming oh through. absolutely because there was a huge you know lull for years and years and years when you know like me and all my friends would have to like catch the bus to sydney to see death metal bands or something and then sort of in amongst that time was when parkway and all that started heading through canberra and i'm sure yourself as well and then a, you know a year or two after that then i was like oh now american bands are playing in canberra again like they yeah, did in the it 90s became, it well, became viable and yeah. you know that's what i think uh, you know, back on the, the early days with, with starting those club nights and stuff in, you know, the early 2000s, it made Brisbane a viable stop. And I still remember the conversation with um, a chap called Chris Moses from Blue Murder. Mm. And he's like, you know, Trad, I've got this band, Hot Water Music, coming to Australia. Yeah. Really don't want to do Brisbane. And I was like, yeah, you're well. fucking kidding me? <laughs> like, look at the numbers I'm doing, you know, we need to do this. And it was the same with Graham. He, he The first international I did through Graham was Cro-Mags. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he'd had limited success through, you know, other venues in Brisbane, but it was building an epicenter around something, which was where, you know, people uh, like you and I in our respective cities and scenes were, were yeah. important to be driving that and once again making it accessible to the kids because yeah, yeah. We'd, we'd stand in the mall and we'd hand flyers to anyone who who looked like they'd be remotely interested in yeah, you know, for sure. surfing, skating, punk rock, <laughs> metal, hardcore anything that sort of defeated the norm we wanted but we wanted them to be yeah. part of what we were doing so Sick. so you're in the band, you're touring, you're doing lots of things um, what was sort of like from there going onward where did you see things going for yourself? Like, at that point when Amity was touring a lot and stuff like that? Uh, I think you only really see what's in front of you and you're, you're really looking for... You're waiting for the next tour. Sure. So you, you're coming home, you're broke as shit, you've got no money. Yeah. You've done all sorts of wild shit on tour, you know. Yeah. And you're sitting at home going, fuck, you know, when's the next tour going to happen? Shit, oh, I've got to get these bands booked. Yep, cool, man. But, uh, you know, for me it was always about progressing the band to the next level and yeah you know giving it that extra push so i guess my head was was in the band for yeah. as long as i was in the band and so while you were doing that stuff though were you did you still have a hand in organizing things here in brisbane as well yeah well uh on? i started i took over a venue in the city called rosie's um and uh was soon approached thereafter by uh destroyer lines to put some clubs in there where I'd work under their mainframe under their resources and you know run this club for them and put you know come up with the names for the club and the artworks and yeah 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 (coughs) so there's a fair bit of pressure there I think in the early days to be booking and running that and you know like I was just stoked to be a part of a company that really wanted to be a part of you know just made it so easy for yeah, me sure so you know there's a band being routed on tour then you know it wasn't as hard for me to get them to come up and play on sure. a guarantee and yeah um so you know I, I always knew that i was good at that stuff so that was that was a piece piece of piss yeah, what yeah. i really wanted to know was how you know amity was going to be playing Soundwave or <laughs> right, right right so it was kind of like a you were in two minds about the stuff because you were sort of organizing things as well and then at the same time trying to push your own thing yeah, but I guess it was a great vessel for me to push my own thing. You sure. Know, at the, I 
I was also uh, working in a skate shop as well. So mm -hmm. between the band, the skate shop, and the nightclub, it was just it was all about the band and you know yeah. the next release and the next thing to get excited about and to you know get the public excited about. Yeah. And so, how long from then, I guess, did it? You know, obviously, the relationship ended with the band, but like, where throughout that, like, how much further was that a continuation for you then? Uh, I think it was around the six, seven year mark. Yeah. Um, you know, the band progressed and, and probably progressed a little bit past me and, you know, what I wanted to be doing. Mm -hmm. uh, well, I still enjoyed it, you know, yeah. don't get me wrong. I think I reached 31 and I realized I'm uh, jumping up and down on stage to some dramatic emo material. And yeah. It's not uh, fitting it's, with the you know, mental aesthetic <laughs> that's happening for you. Yeah, and, and at that time, you're 31 and, and you're still not making that much money and you know, you've sacrificed your, your body and your mind and your soul to do what you do. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so you know, that without dramatizing it, you know, basically I, uh, we'd just flown in from Europe into San Fran and uh, just had a shitload to drink and yep. sleeping tablets and whatnot on the plane and... It just it just all seemed to end in my head, you know what I mean? So for me, it was uh, a, a goodbye at the airport. And it, it was really a shit thing of me to do in, in hindsight. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, without doing that, I wouldn't be where I am now. Yeah, so, sure. Yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's just one of those things. That, yeah. You know, and so, so then what was the, like, rebuilding process for yourself then? Like, what, like regardless of the things of the band, regardless of any of that, what... Sure. What did that uh, take on for you personally? Well, in that time, I, I'd, I'd gotten engaged to mm -hmm. my fiance, and yes. uh, she'd since fell pregnant, which yep. uh, we didn't know at the time. We didn't find out till we got back to Australia. Yep. And I think just that, you know, like I said, I was already gearing up to be in my 30s, you know, and I, sure. you know, that's not all by any means, don't get me wrong, but after, you know, between the scare and Amity and the jobs I was doing, and I'd been touring pretty hard since I was fucking 17, so... Yeah. I'd already drank a million beers. And, you <coughs> for know, sure, yeah. Toured around the world. So I'd already ticked all the boxes, you know. For me, it was just natural progression. All right, I, uh, I need to stay in the, the industry that I'm in mm -hmm. and focus on what I'm good at. Yeah. And uh, I was like, fuck, you were good at putting on shows, so... Yeah. Uh, the old drummer from Regurgitator rang me and was like, mate... I've got a friend who's got a space he can't make it work you know mm. he's a fucking old fellow he's lost his mind yeah <laughs> and uh i drove straight in we were living on the sunshine coast drove straight in met with him and uh he took me down into this like dark cavernous venue space and there was fucking graffiti everywhere and it was it was fucked and cool like yeah. i was like this reminds me of like an awesome showcasey type of venue in Brooklyn or sure. you know in Berlin or whatever. So yeah, I got yeah. really excited about it, and um, yeah, within a week I'd uh, taken over managing the venue, and uh, within three months had had bought the venue. So yeah, right. Um, yeah, there was a lot of lot of trials in there. The yeah. the, the owner owned uh, a strip club, which was in the space that we're sitting in now. It was a mm -hmm. porn store strip club. Sure. Uh, Peep show, <laughs> hairdresser, oh, oh. <laughs> multi multifunction All venue. Things, yeah, um, yeah. So, but, yeah. so like, um, was that was that something that was like? I mean, obviously, there would have been a lot of emotion and challenges coming from doing something for seven years and then you know 
ripping the band-aid off effectively and then mm. coming back home and then as you said like having an engagement and a pregnancy like there's obviously a lot of pressures there was there what was what was like your drive i guess within you that sort of pushed for the venue to start up or pushed for you to sort of get through that i think it's the absolute will to look after your family and especially in something that you know how to do so for me i wasn't going to give up whether i was going to start again on a hundred dollars a week uh or you know there was no way i was going to go into a a marketing job or a a corporate job that just wasn't me no chance so yeah it uh it was just almost like natural progression seeing my baby daughter be born uh to having this will to look after my family, but also realizing that I was in my 30s and I hadn't made a start in life besides the band. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think a lot of people looked at that from the outside and were like, you played in this big band and yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You got the world at your fingertips. And that wasn't the case, you know. You got to remember when you leave a band that big, the walls that get thrown up are insane. Yeah, for sure. My friendship group cut in half straight away. Yeah. you know, I, I lost sight of what people's motives were. I thought that all these people were my friends and really, you know, there was, there was no phone calls. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so we, yeah, I think between, you know, my uh, fiance Tyler and myself, we just, there was no way we weren't going to make it work. And I, yeah. I had to pull out a lot of old contacts and make mm-hmm. a lot of phone calls, but they'd never had an international in the venue. And uh, we had Darkest Hour playing here within the month. You know, yeah, so that's crazy. It was just a great testament to see that I still had faith from a lot of people, you know, around Australia to to work to with, do that, yeah, to work with and, and build what I yeah. wanted to do. And so, when you first moved into the space, then I guess what was what what was your, you know, obviously from the graffitied kind of haggard little hole. What where did it go from there for you mentally? Like, where did you envisage the room ending up like? Because well, I think to, to, to a lot of people, that might sound like a weird question, but to someone who plays in a band, it's like one of the, you know, and I've said this to you a lot, but like, and publicly, I fucking love this venue because it's like perfect for playing shows in. And I, I would like to know what <laughs> drew your head to that before it. Uh, well, you know, like I, like I said, when I got in there, it was just a mess. There was a shitty little bar at the other end with these giant fridges. There was a, a riser for the stage. The PA was a vocal PA. And I think just through the years and, and touring, and, you know, we'd take our own fucking PAs on the road. Sure. So you walk into a venue. <coughs> man walks into a venue. <coughs> yes. And uh, I was just like, that's got to be gone. We've got to fix that. We've got to change that. Strip these walls back. And we spent a good, you know, six months mm-hmm. developing the venue to make it yeah. what it is. Uh, so a good friend, Luke Henry, came in who plays in Violent Soho. Yep. Uh, you know, helped me build the stage, or he built the stage. <laughs> I pointed. You, you observed. No, I lifted a few things. <laughs> but no, he was a genius, and uh, he's like, I can make this like this. And then um, I remembered these contacts that I had with production through other venues that I'd been in. I bought in all these great people that had always been around me, and I just hadn't realized, you know what I mean? Sure. I'd been so caught up in the, the touring world of you know, big bands and yeah. who are my mates with and what bands and whatever. Right, right. So you, you essentially become to 
become a little bit of a shit dude I think the bigger mm. your band gets the less tolerance you have for people and yeah and but I think I think as well with that and not not excusing people for being cunts but like I think there is a point as well where when you're doing stuff like that a lot you're so wrapped up in the ideas you have and the like various goals you have going and the people you need to talk to that there's so many fucking people that you start forgetting about that's right these people that are helpful and these people that are awesome and these people that are your mates and it sort of just slips a little bit to the side while your focus is exactly you know so once that was out of my life i got to rebuild all those friendships again with all the people that had helped me become the person that i was and you know they're you know people like shane collins who i've been friends with since i was 16 years old yeah uh you know every time i do something stupid he'd come to me and be like what are you playing in that band for? Like, I did a rap project with Aaron, and I think I remember him like threatening me at a bar. Like, you fucking, you're the guy who showed me piebald. Like, why are you playing in this band? Sure. And uh, you know what? It, it was just great to. I just felt like myself again. You know, yeah. I was standing at the door collecting tickets, and I had all these kids coming up going like, ah, "What you fucking quit the band for?" And I heard this, and I heard that, and I read this, and I was like this is great like I need to hear this shit this is humbling and yeah. it, it put me back on a level and uh, you know it just created that desire to build the venue even more yeah so when I guess when things got started I, I mean I don't know when the first time I came because I, I met you before this had kicked off mm-hmm. but I remember the first time that I came to the bar after it had started I think maybe the first time I came was an outright played here and I was playing an outright but I remember thinking, like, straight off the bat, like, this is fucking great. Like, this is the spot now. Like, because... And, I mean, I think a lot of people... And I don't know whether it's sort of a nationwide held thing, but I know for me, particularly because I live in Melbourne now, that going from Canberra to Melbourne... In Canberra, there was sort of a couple places that were good for shows and things like that. But when I moved to Melbourne and before I'd, you know, had been going there playing shows, it was always, like, the Art House. The Art House has, like, a... A connection to people. That's people right. have fucking tattoos of a venue. Like, you know, like, yep. why... And I didn't understand that until I played a Mind Snare show there. And I was like, oh, okay. And you know, I like, understand now. Matt, Lee, yeah. fucking Jamie, all those dudes, are, they were the people that I looked up to. And, and yeah. that's what made me also realise, for, for all these years, I'd been making all these motherfuckers a shitload of money. Mm. And uh, being paid very little yeah. for, <laughs> for what I was doing. And... Uh, like I said, I was reasonably good at it. Mm-hmm. So switching that, that mindset of the venue owner just being, you know, the big fat pig counting his money, ha, sure. ha, ha, do this, do that. I was like, no, I'm going to get in there. I'm going to serve beers. You know, I, I, I quit drinking, uh, quit smoking, and I just, you know, like I said, that desire was just so strong to make it a band's venue. Yeah. And having toured and, and, you know, whatever I could... I could see what bands wanted, you know. Mm-hmm. I could see what needed to happen to make it like an art house or, yeah. you know, like a St. Vitus in Brooklyn or, you know, sure. those places that people really feel comfortable in as a band member. Yeah. Uh, and also from a punter's perspective too, so. Yeah, I think so. And I think that that sort of... I'm not just here to blow smoke up your ass, oh, but I do please. love your venue. <laughs> so, um, but, yeah, no, I think it, it is really important. I think it's one of those things that, like, uh, you really take for granted when you're playing in a band when you're playing a lot of shows or whatever and I mean it's not so much a big deal anymore in Australia because everything's so disparate and it takes a long time to get to wherever but 
then again, that is sort of there as well. That like when you have tra- driven for fucking eight hours or twelve hours or whatever, when you get to the place, you don't want to get there and be disappointed. <laughs> like no, you don't well, want to get there. Know, and be sometimes like, you're locked out till they fucking yeah. get there, and you know that's the beauty. You walk into Crowbar, there's a jug of beer for you. There's a rider for every band. You know? Yeah. I was so used to going to these fucking clubs and getting one drink card, you know, when I was starting out. It's yeah. just like, what? Well, we pulled 500 people in your venue and they're giving me one drink. Yeah. There's this hierarchy of people. And, you know, now people become direct to me as the venue manager, venue owner, and mm-hmm. say, hey, you know, we're not happy about this. And yeah. I, I already knew it. Like, I'd already changed that perception and changed that ideal of, yeah. you know, Taking I remember the- when, uh, when I Exist first came through <coughs> with Black Breath that time. And yeah. I think, we were all bloody drunk before lunchtime. Yeah. I think the last three times I've been here, that's been yeah. the case. And uh, look, you know, drinking isn't obviously the way, but, you know, forming those relationships with people where you can sit down and, and have a drink and, and talk yeah. about the road and experiences, that means a lot to a band when you get to a, a venue, you know? Yeah. And, and, and I, I think, I mean, the, there's a stark... I mean, I, I saw that difference in when we came here on that tour, say... Where, like, um, you know, we obviously already knew you or obviously already friends with you. But to be able to bring someone who have flown from the other side of the earth and they arrive at a place and they're not, like, hating their life before they do the thing that they love doing. When they're there, they're like, oh, fuck, this is sick. You know, like, that's, that's a really empowering thing, especially for, and I'm sure people don't think about this, but... For a musical performance, if you're fucking filthy and hate your life before you do it, you're probably going to play worse than if you were a little bit pissed because you've been having fun for the last four hours. And, you know, there's always that fine line, too, before a show turns into a party. And and I think that's where we've created a great system where, you know, I think bands understand the shows are selling out, (laughs) everything's professional about it, but, hey... We are approachable. You can find the venue manager. Yeah. You can get change for your merch. You yeah. know, you yeah. do get a rider. <coughs> uh, for sure. You know, we are helpful with loadouts. And, you know, we used to have loaders uh, for a minute. But, um, you know, it's something that we'll, we'll get back. And mm. just adopting that, that European model of... Yeah. Yeah. A place where that sort of stuff is... Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess that's another thing as well. Where, like, over in places like Europe and America, that's sort of ingrained in the musical like culture over there because you can play 15 shows in Germany you know and like them all be a really big show whereas here you can play five or six you know in the major city centers and I think that comes a lot down to our our government you'll find a lot of those European countries you know Brussels you know, in Belgium, yeah. for example, there's there's a grant that goes to venues to help them buy riders and make sure that bands have accommodation and food. Sure. And you know, here I just get more bills. If I want to put on a band, I have to pay you know a live performance fee. Then I'm going to pay the apparas and I'm going to pay the rent and the water. And you know, it it is a it is frustrating at times. Yeah. That, you know, we don't get the support back from the government for the culture that we're creating. For sure. Um, but, you know, and they, they have that in Europe. Not so much in the States, but yeah. Europe especially. So I really switched on with it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a fine balance for us. You know, we don't, mm. we don't want to send ourselves broke, but <laughs> we, we want to create that circuit. And I think <coughs> the sooner Australia wakes up to that model, the sooner you will be able to play, you know, 30 shows in Australia. Yeah. We're a big fucking country. There's no yeah. reason why, it, you know, only the, the bigger bands can get to do it. So. Yeah. And I, I think 
like as well that I mean that whole thing like there is the difference there that I see in Australia at least is that there's there is government assistance for things there is grants and stuff like that but they're like impossible to find mm. like you have to bust your ass or you have to have an accountant or you have to they're not you have to employ someone to write yeah. your grants <laughs> yeah exactly you have to pay somebody and it's not like where I mean I know for sure when we went to Europe like there was some shows that we played that were like the dudes who ran them were like oh yeah we like the the government pays for us to book these shows basically yep they're who's giving you your guarantee like and we do this every week and it's like oh okay so you know that's a really supportive thing of like the arts and things like that as well but I guess the other thing to think about that too is that there's like a huge tourism impact for that as well and like, nice. like especially when bands are coming here and doing those things like not everything's free while they're here they are spending their money on things and you know it's like there's different angles for that, but I think that's something that's sort of... Who knows when that'll ever... Uh, look, you <laughs> know, the, the culture with the, what's happening up here at the moment, trying to introduce the, the 1am lockouts and no shots after midnight. and You know, they're all somewhat strategies to, I feel, bolster a government's policies to, to make them appeal stronger to a predominant crowd that is you know who they want the votes from but what they're not realising is to to hinder music or to hinder this side of music is uh, you know it's not just it's not just the bands it's the graphic designers yeah it's you know the people who print records it's the record labels it's the managers it's there's there's so much more to mm. just a band playing and putting on a show than people think. Yeah. I've got bar staff, there's sound guys, there's yeah. techs, you know, it's just it, it's such a bigger picture than what they think and it's very very frustrating to sit on on our side of the fence because, you know, we are an alternative venue. We're not sure. we're not the biggest club in Brisbane that's going to, you know, we're not the casino, and, you know, the casino is the only venue exempt from those laws, yeah, which right. is absolutely appalling yeah it's crazy Mm. I had no idea that that was the thing about the casinos but I suppose it's entangled with gambling and things like that there's sort of exemptions well if you're ruining families with gambling (laughs) you may as well let them drink and smoke (laughs) inside and it's it's bullshit man yeah but um so I guess what comes into play with that then is when when was the decision for you I mean I'm sure it was there initially as well but when was the decision for you to take the Thing below us to where we are sitting now like what was the impetus to make this just a bar as well well I think that's uh, for me I was working my ass off and, and only really getting four nights of trade between you know eight and twelve and occasionally we'd get through till three on a Saturday yeah I'm in the middle of Fortitude Valley you know yeah. it's not fucking cheap so <laughs> yeah well the venue was successful <coughs> Uh, I felt like it was also held back by a lot of things. And one of those things was, you know, before show and after show trade. Sure. Um, so I had a, a couple of great friends around me who, you know, encouraged me to, to go ahead with it. I th- you know, you were one of them and, you know, the I Dave Haley's and, yeah, yeah. and whatnot of the world. And I just had this vision <coughs> again, walked up here and I was like, well, fucking get rid of that peep show area and... Uh, <laughs> acoustic stage and that was the other thing creating another platform for music to be free in you know yeah. and that's 
free entry to this bar all the time, before and after shows. So you can come here at, at five o'clock and yeah. hang out with your mates, have a band meeting in an environment where the money goes back to the bartender who's going to pay, who's going to buy you merch, who's, yeah, yeah. you know, who we pay as well, and it keeps. Sure. It's just this fucking awesome circle that we have yeah. here. Well, I mean, yeah, like as I said, when. When we, I mean, the last time, two times I exist came here and this was a shell of a room and you brought us up here, like, I think everyone in I exist was like, holy shit, like, this is fucking so sick. Like, the venue we love now, it's going to be a bar too. Like, but I, like, it's really, I mean, it, it is empowering for me as someone who, like, I'm obviously slightly younger than you and sort of have different, you know, my life is moving in different ways, but it is really awesome to see people that you work with and you're friends with and that like this shit happens because it does, I feel like it does show that regardless of what the government's putting grants into or regardless who's doing what, there still is hope for people doing shit on their own terms, you know, like I think it's like, it, to be honest, a lot of, a lot of the venue is actually just straight common sense. Mm. A lot of uh, our age group was born between sort of like 75 and 95 type of thing. Yeah. Encompass the, the genres that we love. A lot of those people own their own businesses, you know. Yeah, for sure. And what music did they grow up with? They didn't grow up with brutal techno. You know? Yeah, yeah. We exactly. grew up with the surf videos and the slayers and the maidens. For and, sure. You know, so for us, that was really important to encompass all of those genres, whether it be grunge, um, uh, you know, black metal, for mm. example, and and everything in between. So, sure. it's, yeah, common sense, really. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I could. So was was taking on. I mean, obviously, running a bar and running a venue are two totally different. Yes, they beasts. Are. Yep. So was. Uh, I mean, obviously, setting up this room was an enormous process for you guys. Like, yes, it was. It was a very heavy undertaking. Yes. But, so, what what was the mindset that you had to take then as someone who had come from touring and, you know, booking venues and then running your own venue? What was, what did you have to change then to now run a bar? Well, you actually have to treat it a little bit like running a band, to be honest. And I do, you know, my band are my... I mean, my, my staff are my bandmates, essentially. Sure. And, uh, you know, we have... We do day trips to Dreamworld. And, yeah. You know, for our staff parties, we set up laser tag. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's all about, <coughs> like I said, treating it as a band. So there's just... There's so many elements to running that band, from booking it to the songs to, you know, touring. Mm-hmm. And it's the same with the venue, is you have to consider all of these things. So yeah. you have to consider what beer people drink as to how much beer you're going to sell to make enough money to pay the rent, to yeah. give a band a guarantee or... A, so there's, you know, there's booking agents, there's bar managers, there's, mm. I think we're up to about, including contractors, around 15 staff at the moment. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, starting from me and, and two other people. Yeah, so it's crazy. It's, uh, it's an absolute beast, but I think delegation is really important, you know, when you, you're actually trying to achieve things. Yeah. And uh, it's always hard to delegate on your dream. Yeah, sure. Because you, you're trying to make people think the same way you do. Yeah. But uh, I think it's just about be a good fucking dude (laughs) common sense (coughs) and find a balance between being the guy that runs it and being the you know the mate for the masses as well yeah yeah. and you know we we still come in and we still 
hang out with our favorite bands and watch new bands and we're still yeah. a part of that process and you, you don't lose sight of that I think that's mm-hmm. the most important thing yeah and so like where where do you like what's your goal then for this you know like this is a fucking awesome big thing now you know like this is a thing that people want to come here to do this is what people want to be a part of what people want to come and film a fucking podcast in <laughs> exactly. but um, you know like what was where do you see things going for you guys from here then? Uh, you know what there's still still a few creases we need to iron out mm-hmm. and uh, always have offers to take crowbar to, to new places and that's something I, I really look forward to looking into in the future I mean yeah. it's not right now but to to have the system that I can pick up and put in other cities that does look after the bands and you know creates a scene and yeah you know everything that we are involved in uh that's that's possibly the dream for us so sure um you know it's not just this that we do you know we have merchandise sure. and you know there's so many other elements to the business that you know i think are yeah just really really important parts of mm-hmm. branding and, and and shit like that, that <coughs> i don't even want to go into it so, <laughs> so there's so it's many so other hard. things, yeah. So many other things, but yeah. Ideally, another another one or two venues around Australia would be yeah. the dream. Yeah, awesome. And so, how how then do you see things working here, like in Brisbane? Then for you uh, from now, like is I mean, obviously, like as you've said, like this is a a venue for bands, and this is a bar for people to spend time in that they want to enjoy being in. Mm-hmm. But like, how do you see? Like, do you see that culture changing in Brisbane at all or in this area? Like, do you... It's only been growing for us. And I think it's, once again, it's becoming accessible to all of those people. And, and I do some weird marketing things sometimes. And it's like, I think where we're genuine is that we're actually trying to get the fans of this music in here yeah, to keep it alive. You know, it's not... No one here is going, oh, I'm going to make a million dollars. Yeah. It's to keep the venue alive, you know, and uh, undertaking those processes like doing massive poster campaigns amongst bus shelters and stuff. I couldn't even fucking dream of that, you know, when I first started booking shows. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, yeah it's, it's just continuously building. You know, I've uh, finally been able to step away from booking the venue full time. Mm-hmm. So I'm just part of a, a collective of people that book the venue now that we've yeah. hired um, and I get to oversee and delegate and help the business move forward sure keep keep the lights on and keep it keep yeah. it moving and so I guess then as well like the other sort of uh, part of that that I would think important is that how has all of this you know uh, worked well within or challenged you then in your personal life like obviously as you said you have a fiance and you have a child like how mm-hmm. has that been something that's affected you through that it's been pretty fucking yeah. hard yeah, I can imagine <laughs> um, but you know I have a very very supportive family and I think that's probably one of the most important elements of the conversation is your support network behind you and I think if the right people are behind you always you know you're always bound to do great things so sure um, you know, Tyler, uh, my fiance's mother, uh, you know, she will come and look after winter while we go do our work that we have to do here. And, yeah. you know, she understands the process of where we're at in life, trying to build a business and create a future for our child. So, for sure. 
Um, and, and, you know, also Tyler being a part of the business, you know, I just, I have a second me to yeah, rely yeah. on. And it's, yeah, just this incredible support network. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. Um, and so, like, is that something that, like, I haven't really had the chance to speak to too many people about this. Obviously, I've spoken to a lot of people that have kids and things themselves, but is that something that is something that you would instill within, you know, your child? Like, I think we sort of, not recording, talked about it a bit yesterday about how, um, you know, we sort of come from a family line or a history line where this stuff isn't really a part of it. Right. Like this sort of the thing, music, you know, playing in bands and being a part of like running your own businesses and all those sorts of things aren't hugely present in the upbringing that we had. Is that something you feel you will impress upon winter on going? Absolutely. I think it's, it's a fucking legacy. And once you've got it in your blood, it's in your blood. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and we see it already in her, you know, we'll put yeah. on, you know, earth or something and she'll yeah. put her hands on her knees and headbang and it's like, yeah. I didn't even teach you that. You just <laughs> did that. Yeah, yeah. You legend. That's great. Um, but, you know, understanding the value of money and hard work, they're two really important things, but, you know, when we, when we did take over upstairs and, you know, we're talking about that process and we're talking about, you know, how it's a band process, it was also a very DIY thought mentality that I had through it you know I had you know a builder come in and help us do this you know that wasn't 400 dudes in here getting paid thousands of dollars it was all you know I fucking polished these floors I poured the slab on there you know I think we got to get a tiler and an electrician in and that was a you know a huge relief for us so um yeah yeah but I guess yeah like giving giving someone I think it's important though as well because there's I think there's a lot of again something we spoke about yesterday there's like life lessons that like I've learnt and that you've learnt and stuff from fucking up and making mistakes and shit that I think were not not present with my upbringing but weren't stressed upon so I think a lot of the people that sort of raised me and were important in my childhood were like I've already done this wrong, so you don't do that wrong. Whereas for me now, someone who works with kids and someone who, you know, I intend on having children at some point myself, the thing that I would impress on them is like, you need to fuck up because, and you need to stumble and you need to try and do things because that's how you're going to develop yourself. You know, like, I always look at my parents and I'm like, why didn't you fucking tell me that I should not do that? <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and that's the thing, you know, I, there's you can nurture those situations as much as you want but people are going to make their own decisions yeah. and um, you know I just hope that I can keep my daughter busy enough in this industry that you know she doesn't have to stray into sillier industries <laughs> um, but you know we're teaching her how to skate and surf yeah. and, and things like that to bolster keep... that with her a yeah. little bit yeah okay cool like I won't be disappointed she can shoot for the stars you know mm-hmm. absolutely whatever path she takes I'll 100% support her but yeah I would love it if she kept the family dream alive <laughs> um, alright well is there anything you would like to spruik on this platform advertise to the masses uh, no no, <laughs> no. I think there's uh, <coughs> like I said one thing that I, I kind of learnt a long time ago and especially coming out of the band and uh, it, it is to just 
put your fucking good dude hat on and yeah. understand that different people are in different situations and just sit down understand them support people and uh yeah it's not it's not a scene that should just keep be you know the bitching and stuff should keep going on I think everyone just needs to get behind people who are doing great shit yeah well fucking great thank you for doing the podcast oh, thank you for having me Sick.